What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 46 of the Jungle Brothers podcast. I am your host, Joe Worthington, with co-host Paul Fetafili, to your award. And, oh, hello. And today's guest, Anand Rajan, aka Nando. That was a joke, everyone. What? <laughs> <laughs> quick, uh, quick shout out to Panavore Cafe. That one? What's that? That's, that's new. I'm coming in with the high energy, Jesus bro. Christ, I've been like, <laughs> been, I've only been away for three episodes. Yeah, we've, we've stepped it up time. and you ha- everyone has to talk <laughs> twice as fast as usual. So you're going to have to accelerate a little bit if you want to be on my level. <laughs> oh, <here you> go. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out to our people at Panavore Cafe for providing the coffee that we're not drinking today because we ran out of fucking filter papers. But check it out. We do have the coffee here. It's just filter papers. So we're going to be back on track from next week. Great um, story, bro. Paulie and I had a, had a cool episode last week talking about injuries. I'm dealing with one myself at the moment. Uh, he dealt with one a uh, year and a bit ago and we went deep on just to the whole mindset and the, the process around that. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, bro. <laughs> I can't hear myself. can hear the, uh We're going into a little bit of the injury piece today but taking a slightly different angle. Um, Nando, as we're going to refer to you as, not Anand. Yeah, please birth do. name. You're an anaesthetist. I am. Would you please give us a little intro to yourself and tell us... Uh, who you are and how you came to be here. Came to Jungle Brothers. Well, just came to be here on the show, what, you know, what your path on this in planet. life has been until this point. Um, I guess to make it very quick from a training point of view, I went to a number of different... I mean, I wasn't naturally a gym person. And then I went to... At some point, I did CrossFit. And they said, and I'll never forget it, you will be, uh, we'll make you fitter and faster and stronger than you've been before. And I think that is, you know, credit where it's due. You definitely got fitter. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that those gyms came about because I, I was never a fan of those plasma screen TV kind of lock you into a contract fitness first kind of arrangements, which is why I think it was so appealing. But then like everything, you know, injuries and little niggles and pains start to come about. So it then led to other CrossFits and then other physios which would say we would fix this and we'd be able to come up with a solution here and it will be like, that's fantastic. Uh, and then when that doesn't quite measure up, then it then led to you guys. And then that's when I came in and he said, oh, look, we're going to fix this. We're going to make you fitter and faster and stronger. It was like, yeah, okay. Uh, but I think what I've found over here, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just time. It's just spending a lot of time and having a lot of emphasis on form uh, and, and doing the movement correctly and uh, realising that it, it just... I mean, it's not even a case of hard work. It's just doing work, doing work and coming consistently. And I think that has been a lot of the training journey. It's really only been this year where I think that I've started to see, oh, well, I, I can lift this and I can move this way and the warm-ups are... A whole lot easier to do and I think if you want to sum up my training history that's a very very short summary of it perhaps the perhaps the right work as well right true right yeah, very not, true. not just something but the the right thing and then the right amount of it yeah you know if I look at you I mean yeah that you're 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 trained from I was thinking about this earlier from the day that you first walked into the gym I remember talking to you and how you came across to me as a person then compared to how you come across now on a daily basis here in the gym is like chalk and cheese, two different people. Mm. Um, and I think that, and what I picked up a lot in that early stage was, was um, fear around, around training. Yeah. And around how you, how your body operated. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of apprehension because it's like it came in, you know, you've got this niggling pain here that's gotten better. And at each point, like I think the first time you ever go to a gym or a process, they're like, do this and then these things will happen. You're like, yes. And then when it doesn't quite measure up the second time, you kind of go, oh, look, maybe it was just a, a one-off. Uh, let's give this a, a good go. And then it doesn't quite measure up. So I think there was, you carry a lot. I think that's one thing you, you may well realise with new members, and I'm sure you see it, that when people are coming to a new gym or come to this gym, they're carrying a lot of the baggage of the previous gyms and processes they've been through, especially if there's either an injury or something else that they're carrying with them. So, yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot of apprehension in the beginning. Tell us about you being an anaesthetist. Switch, uh, switch to that angle. You're, you're, a, yeah, totally, you're yeah. a bit of a doogie howser. How did uh, that come? What, what's the deal? I don't even understand what it is you do. I know what <laughs> anaesthetic is. It's true. I mean, I know that it you know, gets put in you before a surgery or whatever, but what, what's your day-to-day -day look like and how did you end up in that profession? Yeah, so an anaesthetist is a medical doctor, so somebody who's completed med school and medical training and has then streamed uh, after a period of being an intern and a resident uh, into critical care and then has then moved on to anaesthesia, which is a separate specialty and training scheme. Uh, and that's a five-year training scheme with a, a series of postgraduate exams. So that's what an anaesthetist is. Um, I, I moved on to it. I think you, you move into a lot of when you finish medicine, the areas that you would like to go into because I think maybe interest and exclusion. So you work out the things that you like and then you work out the things that you don't really want to be. So I think over time I realised... How I'd many years do you study to get to where you are now? So after high school, I did undergrad med. So I guess it's, it's just... So it's high school, you, what, what, kind of, what kind of marks do you need to get, in, to get into medicine? So when I... study involved yeah, before I mean, you get in? The selection process has changed now. So when I did it, it was the, the old school way where you just had to work very hard at high school and then get a very high mark to get in. A UAI or whatever it's called, Tia. It. Above what? Uh, for, for me, it was... Above 100. <laughs> it was above 100. <laughs> All of us got above 100. Yeah. yeah. It was high. It was just... Yeah. Above 95? Above 97? Above 99. Yeah. <laughs> Sick. Yeah. So that yeah. was when I was at high school. The idea of someone ever getting that was like a fantasy to us. <laughs> you know, it was just like as if anyone would fucking get that. And then here you are. I think actually, I mean, T and I were talking about this some time ago. And I'm sure like for a lot of stuff I'm going to say today, the, the thing about a podcast is that it's recorded for all time. And so you sit back going, oh. Yeah, you don't want to fuck it up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so would I say it differently? But I guess, I mean, a lot of the, the reasons why I think people do quite academically, well academically, and, it, you know, it tends to be, you know, Asian Indian kids that are stereotyped in this space. But I think what is done is that a lot of it's quite gameable in its own way, insofar as you would, you'd pick subjects that would scale quite well and you'd pick often science-based subjects or, or ones where you have a strength where you know it will scale to a good mark. And then you, you know, either with parental support, pressure or both, you, you just put a lot of runtime into, uh, you know, and I think this is no different to a lot of gym activities and you know look if you actually really want to look at it everyone talks about David Goggins now it's really like an academic David Goggins it's like know your territory know how they're going to think and it's just a case of ruthlessly learning a syllabus working out exactly the points of that getting every past paper you can and just gaming it as well as you can and learning that as as well as you can so and I mean that 
has its drawbacks as well in that you, you're just targeting one specific thing. But I think that is one way in which people do well academically. It's just you, you learn exactly what you need to learn that's going to get the best possible mark and then you work hard at learning that thing. And so then people are going to turn around going, oh, is that going to be the way you'd learn life? And it's like, oh, well, not necessarily. I'm not saying that. But when people say that's how you become an expert at something, though. It's what, sorry? It's how you become an expert at something. It's definitely how you become proficient at something, Mm. I think. Especially talking to, I mean, you know, like for people in an older age group, which is probably all four of us now, it's like a lot of that is experience and time and looking at different things and working out how you learn. Um, But at that time, if you want to do well at high school, that is one way you can do well at high school. so you went to high school, then you had a break. You have a break, or no, you went I straight went, to went, uni? Went straight to oni. Oh damn! So, so a break just sl- slows you down. Well, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know this because I'm still on the break. <laughs> <laughs> then how many years at uni? Um, I think that's one point. It really is a misnomer that if you if you don't go straight into something, that that's a break, and you know a break implies that you're not using your time as effectively as possible, and. Looking back, it's like, oh, I wish I'd just taken a whole lot more breaks. <laughs> yeah. <But laughs> yeah. I would have been much better for it in <laughs> many can. ways. Uh, but I did undergrad med, which is six years. Six years. Yeah. You, you come out of six years and you are an anaesthetist? You are. You? No, you're an intern. Okay, so then what? So then you are an intern, which is kind of like you're a conditionally registered doctor. So I guess it's like a kind of pea plates doctor, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then you become a resident where... You are a junior doctor that hasn't picked a training scheme. So you can be a resident for as long as you wish. You can be a your general resident for a year. And one thing in Australia, especially in our training system, is that we are uh, very much of the, of the belief that you should do at least two years where you are a general doctor. So in other parts of the world, you'd become... Uh, you'd either be a JD or a Turk. If you watch Scrubs, you either become a medical intern or a surgical intern. Scrubs is a great show. It, it, it was good, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, funny. Uh, there's a lot of good calls that... Um, that I, I, don't, I don't watch medical shows in general. Like, I don't watch medical shows at all, but Except I watch Doogie Scrubs. Doogie Howser, uh, House, I yes. Scrubs. <laughs> I do, actually, I did do. you watch Doogie Howser back in the day? Oh, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit. I like a few weeks ago on this podcast that you made a Punky Brewster reference. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that. It's like, I love being in that age vintage where I get those references now. So, shout out to Punky Brewster. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but tell me, so, yeah, so, so okay, so you can, you can fluff around at that intern stage, but... If, you, if you're like, oh, I want to go to this specialised yeah. thing, so you pick what's what, the pathway? What are you looking at? Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to become a physician, you'll usually become a medical streamed resident medical officer or SRMO. Uh, if you want to do surgery, be a surgical SRMO. And so if you want to do either emergency anaesthetics or intensive care, you'll become a critical care SRMO. And that's what I did in my third year out. So that is where you do terms in... Emergency, intensive care, anaesthetics. So you're doing those terms, but at a very junior level. And then you apply to get onto the, a training program, which lets you stream to become an anaesthetist. And then once you are a trainee, you become a registrar in that area. So you'll see registrars everywhere. And so after that, I became an anaesthetic registrar. So there's more study involved in that, I'm guessing. Yeah, at How a postgraduate more? level. Another couple of years? Uh, five years. So it's a lot. Of, it's like eleven. What's years. that whole journey? More than eleven Jeez. years. Oh, it's a lot of study. What, 14 when, what age years? were you? Fourteen years. 
Yeah. Motherfucker. And the study is quite, in, I'm guessing it must be quite intense because there's so many different systems you have to understand. And obviously when you're dealing with drugs, It chemicals. is. So for anaesthetics, the, the, the exams are tough. We're talking big hours with the study, like it's full time, I'm guessing. No, full time and then into part time. Well, you're, no, no, you're, you're working full time yeah. and you need to find time to study on top of that and go to courses and read the material and learn everything. So yeah. part of it is drawn from what you do at work. And then the part, the anaesthetic training scheme is, has two parts. So part one you do early on, which is all very intense science-based around physiology and pharmacology. And then the part two is just clinical anesthesia. So you've got written exams. And then they ask you a series of viva scenarios at the end, which is essentially just like a tough day at the office. So XYZ will have this, you know, it comes in with this, outline your assessment, and then the scenario just gets worse and worse and the point isn't for you to come up with the quote-unquote right decision it's just for people to know what would you do uh and we i mean we'll sort of touch is on there that a, a right later. or wrong with these questions or are they just seeing how you perform well, potentially under pressure i think the first thing is to just make sure you do what's safe uh and that's one thing i mean australian training and australian trained doctors are very very well trained doctors um especially, you know, if you're going to have an operation in just a few days from now. Australia in 2019 is one of the safest times and places to have an operation. So, you know, an Australian trained yeah, doctor is of very, a very, uh, very high stunt. Uh, that's standard. nice to know for you, Joe. That is nice to know. Yeah, 100%. So how does, how does, the, me does the medical sy system get there? Because I've, I've seen, I was in London a long time ago, and I saw uh, a surgery uh, that was... I think it was 19, it was like a, a not late 1800 surgery. It looked, it looked more like a, like a butchery, like a Where did you see oh, it? Like oh, it was like a setup. Oh, right, okay. It was okay. a museum, but it was all Fuck. like ready to, to operate museum style. Yeah. And it was all original equipment and tools and that clean, it looked amazing, but it was a fucking horrific looking uh, scenario. Sores so and to shit. go from there to where we are now, it's not a very long period of time, really, when you think about it. I think the, but the amount yeah. of information that must be stored somewhere, how does what what's the process between getting from not using any anaesthetic that they, back then to where you are now, where you have a huge amount of selection and combinations and the rest of it, what you do as a as a job? Yeah, I think it's incredible when you look at the history. So I think one of the first things is really before you had the advent of anaesthesia, you were often more likely to survive if you didn't go into hospital than if you did. Because uh, people talk about various anaesthetics that have you know, come and gone over time, but realistically an operation before you had anaesthesia depended on the speed of the surgeon and the brute force of the surgeon. So either you had such a huge surge of adrenaline that you just that overwhelmed your system and you died from that. In fact, there is a, a type of heart failure called stress cardiomyopathy that comes from adrenaline overwhelming your circulatory system or you had insane PTSD or you just Ooh. had intractable blood loss because you moved so quickly that you didn't have time to sort of clean. I mean, it's just horrific. What were some of the old forms of anaesthetics? So it, it's alcohol, funny you say that. Like alcas? Yeah, I mean, alcohol, opium. Um, I see various potions that were invented with, you know, hemlock and various things. There's, there's, there's a, a Japanese surgeon that talks about various uh, powders that are all mixed together and then they're just given and kept 
close to the patient. They would sort of fall into some kind of stupor. Mm. Uh, and then another kind of, you know, you put a sponge of vinegar and then it would bring it out of it. I'm sort of, I'm mixing history now, but I think that's that kind of thing. Bit of witch doctory kind of stuff as well, or? Yeah, I, look, I mean, there's so much trial and error that went into this. And I mean, by trial and error, like you can underline error. Error. In yeah. there. And it's just a wonder that we survived as humans, but we, really. Fuck. I mean, we had to go through that, didn't we, to get to where we are? Well, I and mean, how fortunate we are that we didn't have to go through that. Totally, and it's 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 the 1800s where things really changed. And in fact, I mean, as we'll go on to talk about, it, it's easier to just frame a lot of this around what's going to happen to you, that what's going to keep you asleep. I'm going for a surgery on Wednesday. Which yeah. is five days from He's now. Getting the good stuff. I'm you getting are the good stuff. I'm going to wake up under. with a RoboCop knee. Yeah, that's what I expected, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to reno everything else, are no, they? No, they don't like give that. me the metal face or anything. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's it's the 1800s where things changed. It was, I mean, what you're going to be kept asleep with is a derivative of ether, which was first demonstrated in the 1840s. And what, what what's that? What is ether? Ether's involved in alcohol production as well. No, it's is a it? separate compound. So okay. it's it's a hydrocarbon with the oxygen in between. So it's like you've got an oxygen here that's like. The body that's holding two arms, which are hydrocarbons, it's just it's a class of, it's a, it's a type of structure. Okay. Um, so I mean, how they came about is that they were coming up with all manner of things. Chemists were developing all manner of different either agents and gases, and this is around the time that people were even identifying or uh, that a gas was a gas. That people were realizing that oxygen was a thing that was in, important and essential to life. And so there were two big things that really happened in the 1800s. So uh, there were two dentists that got wind of this idea that if you gave this gas and people breathed it in, uh, you could do dental extractions and procedures quite painlessly. And so fast forward a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation on yourself and unwitting people. Uh, you get to, uh, like, there, there are, they talk about what is the point at which modern anesthesia really started. And the story is incredible. So, I mean, you've got two parallel kind of gases. One was nitrous and one is uh, ether. So this dentist got wind of something called sulfuric ether. And uh, after a series of other trials, it was October 1846. And the story is crazy that they had a man with a giant vascular tumour around the neck with various distended veins and whatnot around it. And you had a delivery system, which was a mask, and you'd drip some ether down. And, uh, I mean, I just think of if, if we had to do that in 2019, we, like, I would be thinking of things like airway protection, large IV access, if we cut this thing, how we would deal with blood loss. There's infection. Uh, infection. That's one. Oh. I'm seeing from the anaesthetic alone, despite mm. all of the obvious things you've talked about, like prepping, draping, mm. aseptic technique... Um, Anesthesia in a sitting position, so air can be sucked into a large vein and there's various other things like that. This guy did it with no IV access and just a poor delivery ether device that just kind of dripped an anesthetic in. And miraculously, it worked a treat. Hmm. It worked incredibly well. And, I mean, you can just Google uh, the image of first demonstration of ether anesthesia. You see a bunch of guys in suits looking at what they've just witnessed and as the guy woke up, you know, right towards the end, it was like, we, we are onto something amazing. Game changer. Yeah. And it really was. And they, they uh, proved it again and again. And then everything went 
from there in, in the ether direction because suddenly we can do operations. We can do operations. People will keep still. But, I mean, the beauty of ether as a drug is that you need very little experience and it seems to work um, with whatever delivery system. With I mean, there's qualifications to what I'm saying and this is all within reason. But it's an amazing drug. And on the other hand, there was uh, another dentist that had nitrous oxide and that had a bit of a bumpy start because uh, he first, after a series of demonstrations, wanted to demonstrate that it would work. He had someone who was presenting for surgery on the day who refused on the day. And so he's there with this bag of nitrous going, oh, does anyone else want something done? There's a guy <laughs> in the audience saying, actually, I'll, I'll, I've got a tooth that needs extraction. But the point was because of poor delivery and because of you know, poor containment of the gas. He apparently groaned as they pulled the, the tooth out, even though the patient went on to say, actually, it was minimally painful. But, ah, but for the sake of demonstration. Yeah, the guy was discredited and laughed out of it and all that kind of thing. And oh, wow. it was... and But really, one of the people that, that was, was using it, it was really just used as a kind of a parlour trick. So if you've heard of the Colt 6 Revolver, mm. invented by Samuel Colt, one of the big guns of the Wild West. Yeah. Uh, he used to offer nitrous as demonstrations, just as 25-cent tricks, and then managed to amass enough money to patent his revolver. So nitrous really just helped to finance the... What, he would offer nitrous for people to try it? Yeah, just to sniff and just giggle a bit and then Right, because that's out. laughing gas. Yeah, and that's all it was up yeah, until right. that point. So in the 1830s, it would be like just something you'd travel around and have a sniff of this, whereas only over time people like, you know, maybe we can actually do things with this. But right. finally, over time... Uh, people used nitrous and then more importantly nitrous is a gas that is uh, you know is if you're inhaling nitrous you're not inhaling oxygen so it means you've got dangerously low levels of oxygen mm. so finally when people realized if you deliver nitrous with oxygen itself then you you have a gas that can be used but people will live at the end of it right so imagine getting your teeth pulled out <laughs> without any anesthetic oh, it's fucking sickening to think oh. of yeah, Man. it's brutal. I it's mean, imagine someone cutting you, cutting you open. Ugh. Yeah, sawing your leg. You know, like all the horrible amputations and shit that would have had to have gone down. People genuinely got PTSD out of it. Man, yeah, yeah. it's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. We feel like a, such a pussy. You know, it's yeah. like because you would have had to just do it, right? There's no other option. Yeah. Um, or you'd get very, very drunk uh, and chances are you'd have a big meal and then, you know, like if, if any of that goes the wrong way, which is one of the cornerstones of things we worry about, then it's just... Bad times for everyone. Uh, but Get what drunk, have a big meal. What do you mean? Well, one of the things we do before having surgeries, they say don't eat after a certain time. Fast. Yeah, so you need to be fasted. And that's because they don't want you to vomit? Yeah, food. risk right. of aspiration. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you don't want any gastric contents to end up in your respiratory system. Okay. So that's why we have fasting times. Can you tell us a little bit about what the body does if it has to go through something like that? Um, and you said adrenaline is what it'll deliver. Is that How does it work if someone has to has a finger cut off and they're isolated and how do they deal with that that sort of pain? Uh, how do they deal with pain in general? Yeah, how would they well, deal say with like, that Yeah, like the rock, the rock climber had to cut his arm off. Yeah. Something like that. Like what... what Mid fucking how's the body climb. helping him deal with that pain in that survival story? Well, I mean, pain is uh, the, the sort of the long sort of held definition uh, which we have of pain now is... Uh, an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience characterised by actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. 
So <laughs> what they talk about is, and that you just have comes to write that in exam. Once? I had to learn it over <laughs> and over and <laughs> over and over again. You yeah. believe me? Every anaesthetist who's at every trainee who's passed the primary will know that definition off by heart. <laughs> right, it's, on. one, it's one of these things where it's a, it's a bit kitschy and cliche, but it, everyone has to learn that. It covers every little avenue because obviously Perfect. you can still yep. feel pain without. I, I mean, people experience pain without a cut or without any sign of pain and that would be something psychological well there's actually a few things so now that i have this it's like what they call is a multi-order neuron pathway stay close so you would am i my back yeah I, I sound i can hear me now so just say i mean just say you say you cut your finger this is my sort of bad picture He's of a drawing finger. a finger so what it is it's the middle one and i'm drawing this here but you don't need to see it by any means you have one signal from your periphery to your spinal cord, the arrow, and then from your spinal cord up to your brain, and then there's various influences that it'll synapse around parts of the brain, but also your emotional centre, and then there's levels of descending inhibition as well. And I think that's what you're referring to: the people who don't feel pain because of various other influences or an intense amount of pain. Uh, it means it's that there are ways in which you can either uh, reduce the amount of pain or modulate it and there's a term called the gate control theory of pain which talks about that but essentially to put it down that's from, something you can you can train uh short answer is yes but i can't really comment beyond that what i can tell you is a whole lot about which point at which you give the drugs that work and then there is an emotional component to pain and that can certainly be modulated so people who feel a lot of pain because they anticipate they're going to feel pain uh, are definitely going to feel like they subjectively hurt more which is why that definition is sensory or um, un, you know by or described in terms of such damage because you don't necessarily have to have the damage there after a while to say that it hurts mm. yeah there's um, like a, so there's a big perception thing going on there yeah right. totally. there's that famous story of a guy who a builder who shot a nail through his foot into yeah. a piece of timber he was working on through his boot, screaming, fucking just put a nail through his whole foot. They had to cut the board off. They took him to hospital. They had to delicately remove his shoe. And he's screaming the whole time. And then they remove his shoe and they realise the nail's gone between two toes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and yeah, he right. was in like, like serious pain until that moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember where I heard that. But that's a great story. You never went back to the work site again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's. I got slabbed. They also hear of people who've got phantom limb pain, who, yes. uh, even with an, an amputation, who then sit into a double sided mirror so that as soon as they can see what was their limb, with their good limb being mirrored across, and then the pain leaves. So there's. Yeah, they there's, start stretching it and stuff, don't they? They can open it up. There's always stories like that. But to come to a more acute thing, like one thing we can concretely talk about, which is what's going to happen to your knee, there's going to be essentially a peripheral sensitization. So, you know, when somebody drives an actual scalpel into your knee or someone cuts your hand, there is a signal from the periphery to your spine uh, and there is a period of what they call peripheral sensitization. So it means that you've got fast and slow pain fibres that will transmit pain to your spinal cord. So you get that initial sharp pain and then you get that throbbing pain that follows and that just depends on whether the nerve signal that is sending it is insulated or not um, but what it means is there is an amplification process that'll happen at the periphery and so uh, if you 
well, actually, I mean, I'll, to explain it first and then we can explain how the painkillers all work. So there'll be an amplification from the periphery to the spine. Within the spinal cord, broadly speaking, there are pain-specific receptors and then there are ones called wide dynamic range, which will just transmit depending on whatever stimulus is there. And so if the stimulus is unchecked over time, there are various receptors that are plugged. And if you fire enough signals, eventually they will unplug and then transmit more fibres, and that's called mm -hmm. central sensitization. That will take a period of time and stimulation. And then there are ascending pathways that will transmit pain, and then there are descending pathways that will reduce or modulate pain. So, yeah. So what, what you're saying, you know, like to, to kind of get an overview of that whole thing, is that um, that's all related to feeling pain at one specific site, <coughs> but it's how it's all these different potential... Um, pathways that the pain signal can take? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, and it also is uh, how we'd address pain. So how we would tackle your pain at the end of it is there's this concept of what they call multimodal analgesia. So you have a combination. So we talk about something called the WHO pain ladder where you have simple analgesics, so paracetamol, and then that broad class of what they call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which is your... Uh, Nurofen, Voltaren, Naprogesic. You said the signal said, I just want to go back a couple. Sure. You, you slice yourself, cut yourself as an example. I cut myself, body sends a signal to the brain. Yeah. Brain uh, eventually, send, yes. Yeah, yep. So you're ascending signal, then you've yep. got descending signal. So that signal gets sent back. What's that, what's that doing? What, is it going to release some, some kind of something into the blood? Like, why is there a signal going back? Uh, as in, why is there a, 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 de a, a signal that will decrease the yeah. pain? Well, uh, they talk about in terms of control systems, there are positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. So When it goes back, is it telling the nerves that are, are sending the signal to the brain to, to chill out? Like, what, what, I don't understand. Uh, so the descending signals, uh, well, there are descending signals that will... Tell, yeah, which will tell you to chill out if they're activated. Uh, and then there will be continuing ascending pathways that will say keep it going. So right. the descending ones will modulate in some way. There's a lot that could go potentially wrong there, yeah? Like you could, your, your ability to, um, to interpret pain from a certain like, like injury could be heightened or it could be quite dull depending on the individual. Well, also depends on the site of pain. I mean, rather than look at it as right or wrong, it's just going to be where the site is and where it's going to ascend to. Um, Can you give us an example? Well, I mean, if you're the having appendicitis, mm. um, that was one thing. It's like I realise I've been on the other side of this so I'm, as a consumer of the product. Extreme a, pain? Yeah, it's very unpleasant. So if you've got pain from an organ, then it won't be as well-defined and so what you classically have in appendicitis is where you have generalised abdominal pain and then as the inflammation progresses, it will classically shift to the right lower abdomen. So that is an example of where there is a specific site affected, but because you don't have uh, the nerve signals as well concentrated, you'll get dull or diffuse pain. So you'll get <coughs> what they call non-specific pain, which will eventually localise. So that would be an example. So does the body have more nerve systems to 
deal with pain to receive pain and stuff on the peripherals. Uh, it does say on the inside. It means that there were yeah, there are more receptors. There more are receptors. specific yeah, there are specific receptors on the skin, uh, right throughout the body. Mm. So there are there are going to be what they call mechanoreceptors and then nociceptors, so pain specific receptors, and these are widespread throughout the body. And you got your visual feedback as well, which I guess is a big one, like watching a bolt go through your foot and then interpreting that as something that's very painful, whereas something inside, you can't actually see it. Yeah. You can't see the cut or the damage, so it's harder to, to isolate it. And if, yeah. Yeah, like, like, yeah what, you know, like say that thing where, um, I mean, obviously there's stress hormones, but like someone has a, someone's in a fight or something like that and they get injured or cut and they don't know about it and then they see it at the end of the thing and it's like, oh, shit, like my... My eyes, you know, my my forehead's got a massive gash on it. Yeah. And obviously all of my toes broken. I mean, you see it all the time in UFC, you know. Yeah. Um, and I guess that a lot of it's masked by adrenaline and whatnot. But but it's also that, oh, I'm actually injured now. Oh, I can feel it starting to hurt. Well, increasing availability of noradrenaline or noradrenaline can actually reduce your pain. Or right. can actually, that's one of the things that can modulate pain. And in fact, there are drugs that will uh, increase the availability of noradrenaline that are used in reducing pain. And in fact, actually, for your kind of surgery, I'd probably be inclined to give it, but we can come to that. Would that be something that the, the descending signals from the brain would be triggering? Yes. Or where the... Yeah. Yes, it would be. All right. Um, but you're, the other point you had brought up of visually seeing things, that as the pathways ascend to the brain from the spinal cord... Uh, it'll also go through the emotional centre as well. And so when that, and that's, that would activate the emotional component or through the limbic system. Uh, so that's why that visual idea of seeing things would, as you'd say, heighten the perception of pain. Mm. Yeah, right. Very. Like it's so multifaceted, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. It really is. I mean, that's what, I mean, not all of it is going to be useful for us, but that's evolution. It's an, it's, we are just adapting as best as we can. Yeah. And I mean, I guess remember a lot of this was fundamentally designed to protect, um, just so that you don't have an injury and then go go at strength and movement as hard as you can. <laughs> but whether you whether that ends up helping you is another story altogether. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, so going back to the the whole uh, trial and error thing. What's a what what's a how long does it take for for one of these drugs to actually be available to? To general population, because I'm, I'm guessing that, like nowadays in, in today's world, you can't just go out and test on on humans like you could in the 1900s, and people are putting their hands up. Or is that the process? Do you get a bunch of? If bunch you do of it properly, then the answer is many years. Right. Yeah. Um, if you do it on the sly, or you know, if you go dark to web, I need some volunteers. <laughs> I actually think you're more like we'll a health food shop, but then let's you know, like it's one of these things where people go, "Oh, look, I I think this." I've, I've got a tree at home and if I rub it here, then my arthritis gets better. I mean, there's nothing tested about that, but there's nothing to stop me selling it from people who strongly believe it would work. But to go back on track and actually answer your question, the answer is many years. So, I mean, if, if you and I here developed, you know, some sort of, I don't know, food that could make my headaches go away, we go like, how are we going to make money off this? The answer is that you would have to firstly isolate exactly which part of that food was doing the job and then it would be through a process of isolating and synthesizing that. Um, I mean, to answer the question really broadly, it would be work out all of the therapeutic and side effects 
and then go, go through a series of stages of testing it with healthy volunteers, testing it in a small select group of the intended population, then do uh, further trials involving the general population and then mass production from there. And I mean, by the time you do all of that, years have passed. Well, and then you'd have the data that you need for long, like a long-term long -term effect of yeah. whatever it is that you're... Or you could skip all that and hire a marketing team or get a celebrity to start using it. <laughs> well, these guys have marketing teams as well. <laughs> and, and quite possibly celebrities as well. But uh, if you want it to be... Um, you know, subsidised by the government to actually help people, then you need to go through on that an actual process. Sure. I saw a thing actually just on that, um, <coughs> an email someone forwarded me that they got from a supplement company they buy off, but that the it was a, a campaign from the supplement company in conjunction with other supplement companies saying that the Australian government wants to, um, they want to move uh, sports supplements, nutrition supplements from a food category to a like a therapeutic use, like more like a health category, right. which means that they'll undergo much more stricter standards and testing and the regulations will be tightened up. And it was an appeal to stop this. So it was like sign our petition because you're going to see heaps of supplements go off the shelves. You know, they, that, and I thought, fuck, it's probably an awesome thing. Well, doesn't that just say it's something? It's probably great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's like awesome. So well, I should buy as much as I can <laughs> now while it's still on the market. <laughs> of all the stuff that doesn't work, or I, mean, I can wait till they come into action and just buy what works. There'll be just like one whole shelf of whey protein and then another shelf of creatine and that, that that's it. it. Yeah, no <laughs> test. nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> Every ASN shop in... Uh, in Australia. <laughs> Downsize. <laughs> then you'd have fortified whey protein, unfortified. A bit of fish oil. Paleo whey, oh, who knows. And lots of steroids. So <laughs> what, what's going to happen? <laughs> so next, next week I go in and I have a, I'm in hospital for a day and I have a, an ACL repair, yes. which is a ligament in my knee. And then they're going to repair the old one that's like what's left of it. And then they're going to do an ACL reconstruction. So they're going to take two tendons off my, off my hamstring yep. and they're going to double them over to make four strands. They're going to turn that into a new ACL and they're going to screw through the bone, the leg, the thigh bone and the shin bone and they're going to attach it. And then they're also going to stitch the meniscus down because the meniscus is a bit lifted from the bone. Yep. Uh, and then I'm good to go. Um, the, what's going what's gonna to happen? So I'm going to go in at the beginning of this process, put the gown on and then what? Yeah, so I mean you'll go into... I mean, after you get your checks and your obs and everything like that done, you'll go to the anaesthetic bay and uh, unless they've made contact beforehand. So the anaesthetist invo is involved right through what they call the perioperative period. So from before you go into hospital right through to discharge, it's, I mean, in, in, you know, I guess the, the old sort of stereotype is that someone you just meet there and then you never see them again. But the involvement is really right throughout the process. And it, it's easier for you, who is a fit, healthy young human but ish you called me old before young ish i said we were in the same age vintage didn't know <laughs> something like that i'd have to listen back into it right between the lines nando oh punky brewster for the win that's, that's all <laughs> that's i keep coming true. back it's to me that referenced that. <laughs> <laughs> um but to just i mean so at that point you'll meet the anaesthetist uh most likely unless they make contact with you beforehand so if you're quite unwell uh chances are would you'd either go if you say in the public system you go through a clinic beforehand and be worked up and there would be planning needed 
in this case, uh, they'll have a pretty good idea of what's, what they're going to do. But after they assess you, they're gonna, they will go through all of your history. They'll do an airway assessment, so they actually have a look, try and look at how hard it would be to actually intubate you if they had to, and they would do that for any patient. Um, what, like get tubes up through my nose and yeah, so down my throat? If you sit up straight right now, just open your mouth wide as you can, put your tongue out as far as you can go, put your chin down a bit, yeah, you'll be fine. Bend your neck back. Yeah, far as roll your eyes back. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> Laybacks. <laughs> Get that bottle of whiskey on the shelf. Yeah, okay. I never Chance. thought about it that way. <laughs> maybe I will now. Um, I bet you do that with all the girls. <laughs> <laughs> so well, you'll because it's true. <laughs> you'll get some IV access. They'll put a cannula in, and then when people talk about getting a premed, um, what you usually get is midazolam. So. Uh, that's the I little like brother that of Valium. Most people have heard of Valium. You're like, oh, it just relaxes you. But it's a class of drugs called what they call the benzodiazepines. And they are a class of drug that essentially have five functions. So sedation, anxiolysis, uh, they will produce skeletal muscle relaxation in high doses and depending on the drug you use. They're an anticonvulsant, so you can use it to terminate seizures. That's not why we're using it today. But one of the most useful things about it is anti-grade amnesia. So you may not remember a great deal after you get it, but I think most people don't really want to. And mm. what it does is that you have, um, you have signals that are excitatory and you've got signals that are inhibitory and it makes the inhibitory receptors and signals work more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And that's how you tend to just relax. Some people are like, oh, yeah, I got this stuff, and then I just remember waking up. That will be one of the parts to play in it. Um, so you'll get a pre-med, you'll go on into the theatre, then there'll be uh, a period of pre-oxygenation while they put all the monitors on. Um, they'll usually give... Uh, and a, I'm like, I'm kind of with it at that stage, but not really with it. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Um, they'll probably give you some sort of painkiller. The most likely one um, is called fentanyl. So you can give any kind of... Fentanyl, that's the one that's taken over the illegal drug market in the USA right now. Yeah, I, I believe it's, it's always changing, isn't watching it? documentaries, yep. Yeah, it's, it's this year's season. But the drug's been around for a very, very long time. And what that will do is help to obtain your laryngeal reflexes when they put in uh, an airway that'll help you ventilate while you're asleep. So... What it is is that you, I mean, people go, oh, I just get given something and then that's it. You get an induction agent when you go to sleep. So you need something that's going to actually anesthetize you. Uh, and the reason is we come back to ether. Um, there are stages of anesthesia described with ether. So the first is that you will become drowsy. And then the second, which is the most dangerous stage, is essentially where your brain disconnects from the muscles. So you still have your reflexes intact. So you can become hyper-combative and hyper-reflexic. But remember, there's also your vocal cords that respond to one thing when they're stimulated, which is to shut. So uh, that is the most dangerous stage where people can, can, can get combative, but you may not be able to oxygenate them in any meaningful way. So you want to ideally get them through that stage as quickly as you can to the third stage, which is anesthetized. Um, if you keep giving more and more without monitoring, which is what you did with ether in the old days, you'd reach the stage four, which is cardiorespiratory depression, and then finally death. And because your heart stops beating, you just keep giving more and more ether. So that was described with ether, and mercifully now we have a whole stack of monitors that you know will alarm and prevent that from happening, and staff who are trained in doing it. So that's the reason why you'll get an induction agent, which 
for the most part, is most likely going to be an IV agent, which is uh, almost definitely going to be propofol. Uh, and that's that's a drug which I mean people talk. It, it reached fame because that's the stuff that Michael Jackson got given to sleep, and that's kind of people go, mm. oh, "Is it the Michael Jackson drug?" And it's like, well, I mean, firstly, yeah. Michael Jackson had a lot of drugs, but that is one of them. But let's make no mistake; it's an IV general anaesthetic agent. Yeah, uh, and it will induce unconsciousness. So by the time I'm getting that. The other stuff that I've had has kind of already knocked me out? Uh, it'll have kicked in up. and it'll synergize. So every drug will synergize with the other one. Um, I mean, you could, I suppose you could give a large amount of propofol on its own, but uh, it, that's usually not what is done. There's, there's variances right throughout what you can give, but most likely you'll get a pre-med, you'll get some painkiller, and then you get some propofol that sends you off to sleep in a, okay. in a, do- in a dose appropriate for you. Before you get to sleep, though, you'll receive, you know, they go, oh, they put the mask on. That's just oxygen. So your lungs are the largest store of oxygen in the body and you are consuming oxygen at, I mean, for a 70 kilo adult, roughly 250 mils a minute. And you've got a store of roughly 250 mils of oxygen. That's why people talk about if you suddenly collapse that golden minute to start doing things. If you pre-oxygenate and fill your lungs up completely with oxygen, you can extend that time of oxygen storage to many minutes. Hmm. And that was from the days where you couldn't necessarily intubate someone or you couldn't actually get the airway in. You had enough store for the drugs to wear off and to try and wake up the patient. But, you know, just about everyone receives oxygen for a period of time <clears throat> before they give an anaesthetic drug. Because even though we did that assessment there and had a look in your airway and go, oh, it'd be pretty easy to ventilate you and to be able to establish some sort of tube if we had Might to. Not happen. Yeah, mm. there are always going to be cases where it's going to be difficult for that to happen. Uh, and then I suppose later on we can talk about just crisis management and drills that we, we all learn, which is, you know, the cornerstone of a lot of what we do. So Joe's getting a needle in his arm. Yeah, um, he'll get a cannula. So yep. the needle just inserts a, yep. a small straw. Yes. And the straw is just a conduit for giving whatever medications. So when I had my ankle That's surgery, right, yeah. yep. um, they gave me nerve blockers. Yeah, I'll yeah I'll come to that which as well. Was, which was a little I different. want the fucking nerve blockers. Which was I think it went in through my hamstring. You'll get a nerve block. Yes. Learned, so I think I had something to chill me out first. It might have been a gas or something, but I was pretty much awake when they were when they were giving me the nerve blocker. Yep. How is that very different to what? Is that yeah, completely so different to what Joe's getting? No, I think. And why would they have chosen the nerve blocker? From was that specific to the part? they're working on or uh yes so it would be i mean especially for orthopedic surgery i I would offer a nerve block to joey um i mean because you don't want me to become combative no uh (laughs) we have plenty of drugs that can deal with that no it's going to be not only excellent pain relief and i think there's no better pain relief than a really effective nerve block and to look into that they go what what is a local anesthetic and it's any drug that will just prevent uh, transmission of a nerve signal. So if it's it's a beautiful thing, really, that if you can, can you like can you buy it over the counter? Because nah. sometimes people get on my nerves. And oh, I like to be able to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it says, no, don't do that. Um, you can't. And even He's if smiling, you, everyone. Even if you did, you'd, you'd have to know where to inject it as well. Imagine if T couldn't feel like pain for a day. You'd just go to town on him. Baseball bat, <laughs> ground and pound. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you, you, you leave in the hands of two athletes who know how to fight and... <laughs> I'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it, it worked that way. Yeah. 
Now these are, when you know it's a good drug, you know they, they'll guard it like hawks. No, a, a, a local anaesthetic would be, it would not only be uh, effective pain relief um, for this procedure, but it would also, uh, it would spare the amount of anaesthetic and other painkillers you'd need to give. So instead of having to belt you with a whole lot of other opiate drugs, it means that if you can find exactly the right spot to target a local anaesthetic and prevent the signal Break from... Break the line. Mm. Yeah. And it means that you, you don't really need painkillers for a signal that's not even being transmitted. Do you need to does that does, do you mean do you need to insert a needle into a nerve or no. do you just insert it into an area? That's a really good question. The answer is no. You don't insert it into the nerve because you get nerve damage if you if you inject. Hurt. Yeah, it it will it will be extremely painful and it will be detrimental to the nerve. So no, it's not injected directly into the nerve. You'll get nerve damage by putting it into the nerve. And to that end, so you put it where. Uh, so I would put it in proximity to where the nerve would run. Into muscle tissue? Uh, y- yeah. Lymph. So you, you would put it into the connective tissue around where the nerve would... Uh, I mean, it would depend on where, which, which nerve, which nerve yeah. you're targeting yeah. um, and where the site of the nerve block would be. So, um, so if, say for shoulder surgery, we would... I mean, I, I, let me take a back step and say that uh, where you would insert anything in the first place with a needle would it used to be a case of you'd find landmark techniques. So with our knowledge of anatomy, we would know, say, I mean, right up the top here, they call it navy with Y front. So you know that you go nerve, artery, vein as you run from lateral to medial. That means if we feel the pulse of the artery, then we know that lateral to it, the nerve is going to be there. So you'd find, you know, an inch out, you could put a needle there and... Uh, inject some local anaesthetic and that would probably numb things and I mean even as we're just looking at you as I'm talking about that that's a pretty crude way of doing things Um, they uh, can either find a nerve stimulator which is a small electrical pulse where you would as you uh, direct your needle to the site there it would deliver an electrical signal which would make sure that you're close to the nerve but not as you had described it injecting into the nerve right and so that was there at the beginning of my training. But now pretty much how we would do any nerve block of this type would be under ultrasound. So I would put an ultrasound probe there. I would find where the nerve would run or the site where it would run. And then I could use it so that I could exactly see where my needle is going. And that's a great... Like it's, it really is an amazing thing that when you find the area that you're trying to target, the amount of drug and concentration of drug is very limited but by getting it in the right spot, that's going to give you hours and hours of pain relief. Um, Mine took a long time to wear off. Yeah. Completely. And that'll be not only the... the you said days, right? I, I think it was like a day and a half. until I, I thought it had worn off. Yeah. But then I truly knew when it wore off when the excruciating aching and pain came in. Yeah. And that was some day and a half later. Yeah, and that's Oof. something we, we now have available to us. So for, for, mm. for knee surgery, I, I would offer that. I mean, it'll all depend on whatever your anaesthetist is going to do on the day. Well, can you have a chat to this guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would know. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. For the record, I did request Nando if he could be my anaesthetist. <laughs> if I want someone, oh, I want that guy to stick me. Hang on. That dude. Uh, is your sister an, an anaesthetist as well? She is. Okay. But it doesn't work like that. You get who you get. They're paired up with the surgeon. The Nando surgeon. tells me. You, you, um, you'll no doubt have someone who is very well versed at this, um, who will do an excellent job. No do doubt. You, do you guys mm. talk shop a lot? Fucking bad. Yeah, mm. yeah, we do. Especially when there's <laughs> <laughs> pretty not rare. Sold. When there's <laughs> a job. I mean, it's not like the the core of what we talk about, but we, you know, when, when there's some difficult case, and I want a second opinion, it's nice to know there's someone who, I, and vice versa. 
It's like, how would I tackle this? Because, I mean, you, when you go, you can either have very uh, well people for quite elaborate surgery or very unwell people having a very simple procedure um, or the surgery itself is going to be quite involved in different ways. And it's all going to be an interplay of exactly how you do that. So it'd be, you know, your monitoring, access, um, airway, drugs, equipment, and what I would use in this case. So for you who's fit and healthy is having extremity surgery. Um, it's not going to be as complicated as if it was, I mean, the you know, usual things like brain surgery or long duration gut surgery or things like that. What, um, what determines when, they would, when you would choose to go with a local as opposed to a general anaesthetic? Local being just the site, you're still kind of conscious. Yeah. You just can't feel the thing. And then general being you're knocked out. Um, it would be, uh, I mean, there'd be a number of factors, but it would be patient, surgeon, anaesthetic. So if, uh, if it's going to be extremity surgery that's not expected to be of long duration, that's going to be uh, well covered by local anaesthetic, then uh, you, could, you could definitely do that either under local or with a bit of sedation. So sedation by definition, is any state that they say, quote-unquote, moderates or soothes. And there are a number of different agents you can use in order to achieve sedation. So quite often, if we have simple plastics cases where, you know, a lesion needs to be cut out or something like that, or ingrown toenail repairs, we will quite often just give a dose of some sedation so that they either don't remember it or what they do remember it is quite pleasant. A whole lot of local anaesthetic is injected in the area to block it. And then they sort of come to and then they generally just either have a snooze or something like that. But you've got to have a patient that's willing to do that, a surgeon that's willing to do that, and then the type of uh, surgery that is appropriate for it. Right. So where that exists, that's fine. I mean, like for yours, your case, we haven't even talked about neuraxial or regional anesthesia, um, which is things like epidurals, spinals, etc. But I mean, that, that would in theory be an option for something like this, but I don't expect that would happen in your case. So you could have that and then you could be awake. But I, I don't think that is uh, what will happen to you next week. Yeah, okay. So, Anand, you um, obviously you're a firm believer of evidence-based science and uh, evidence-based data. Now, um, there's a lot of information out there on the internet and uh, movements uh, around medicine and, and health. Um, there's topics you could talk about for hours. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions but i'm going to ask them like a almost like a like a game so <laughs> or, like a rapid like, fire yeah yeah you guys can join in too if you want <coughs> this is cool so we got like a so I'd we were like pseudoscience evidence-based science we could call it like fact or fiction that could be the answer so all i'm going to oh. do is throw out like a, a sentence okay and you can answer only with fact or fiction that's what we say. We say fact. We say fiction. Fact or fiction. Yeah. Okay. I, I can't. I, do, I, I will do this with a lot of qualifiers, okay. but I will, I will now, try. Now, remember, this is personal opinion, so it's not <laughs> That's when it gets really it's dangerous. Re yeah. So, let's start with... I'm very gullible. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Robot surgeons. As in... Do well, they exist? What or? about them? Well, yeah. Oh, is it a fact or is it a fiction or is it... A Potential it's, fact? Or well, it's a fact. It we have robotic fact, surgery. Fact. Oh, ro fact. Yeah, fact. We have robotic fact. surgery no. now. We're only going to have more of it. <laughs> it's a fact. Okay, well, here's the next one. Essential oils and their health benefits, such as increased focus and potential cure cures of melanoma melanomas. Uh, oh, fact. Fiction. 
limited or fiction? Uh, no, no, it's fact or fiction. I can't say that. <laughs> uh, direct relation between vegetarians and repetitive strain injuries. <laughs> well, in that I have vegetarians that cause me repetitive strain injury. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know where to start. Fact or fiction? Well, you can't, I can't say that's fact. So it's fiction. Fiction. Yeah. I, Come on, Anand. I, I don't know what that means. So. <laughs> he's saying he, vaccines he can says, cause autism. Um, yeah, it's fiction. Fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's, in its own way, it's quite a sad story. Aging is a disease and not a, tr- uh, uh, aging is a treatable disease and not an uh, inevitable act of nature. I just heard that one. Aging is indeed an in inevitable act of nature. Um, it's a fact. I would say to Ellen, well, it doesn't matter what happens, you look great. Yeah, go on. It's just yeah. the perspective. Aging is a treatable disease and not an inevitable act of nature. Well, I mean, there's so many assumptions you've got to believe. One is that aging is a, is a disease. I wouldn't necessarily David say Sinclair, that. well, his whole book, his new book is all about how he believes it is a treatable disease and it should be classified as such. Oh, the 140-year thing. Is that yeah, the, yeah. yeah. The, the it's, it's interesting. I'm still not sold, but I'm like, I'll listen to what you got you to say. You still died 140 years, though. Hey. So you, well, that's so you're right. Aging. You're still aging. You're free of ever aging. Yeah, you're just changing. So the, I'm aging now. Jeez, the, um, the T-800 had a lifespan of 120 years, so you, you can, you're saying you can outlive a Terminator. T-800? Yeah, wasn't it? It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's... Oh, was that his model? Yeah, he's yeah, a T-800. Yeah, okay, and then T-1000 was Terminator 2. That was Terminator 2. Yeah, okay. Isn't that 120 year... Oh, that's the lifespan of the CPU, wasn't it? The T-800. Something like that. Yeah. Geeks. 5G radiation 100%. and its, uh, it's uh, effects on um, small cells in the body. Go again? 5G radiation and its effects on small cells in the body. Detrimental effects. I haven't read the studies. Yeah. Fact or fiction? That, that I'm, I'm with Joey's answer. I've heard none of the evidence to make a comment. Throw it out there. Give pa- us, give patients us waking more. up in the middle of an operation and not being able to move or talk but can experience all the pain. I've heard about this. This is a yeah. thing? Uh, yeah, it is a thing. Like, I can't say that is fiction. Like, that is a fact. But, you know, will that happen here in Australia in 2019? Extremely unlikely. Fluoride, fluoride is a neurotoxin. I don't think so, but I don't know. Fluoride in the water. Yeah. It's a big topic. Yeah, you're in right. Byron Bay. Big well, topic. Well, what I do know is, yeah, the Byron Bay Council voted to remove, to remove it. fluoride Did they? in the water, which that's is now right. that area now has the highest rate of dental caries in the country. At least that's Actually, really? I be- yeah. When well, did they remove it? I think this is not a new thing. Holy shit. I, I hope, I hope what, I'm, what I've just said is wrong, and I hope that it is back and... Yeah, but that is what I have heard. But then yeah, I've they also don't have, they don't have fluoride in the water anymore. But then I've also heard that third hand and from the internet. So you know, it, it could just be nonsense. And I really hope it is. Uh, meditation leads to volume changes to key areas of the brain. I don't know what volume changes. Well, are. you're getting you get you get smart you get smarter in certain areas. Um, like you have physical change to your brain. Yes. You'd say fact? Yeah, fact. I don't Physical know changes to the brain based on meditation? Sure. I, I don't know enough about it. Mm. Do you believe it? Do you, would, you, would your instinct say, oh, that sounds about right? I guess is what... 
I think this is we can't say fact or fiction because we don't know. But it's like, does that, that sound likely? Opinion. I, yeah. I think opinion. I think this is exactly the, the problem <laughs> we have now, where people go, "Oh, yeah. look, that sounds about right. So that must be true." And it's like where people don't go directly to the source. And I think if there's one thing which I can make as a global statement is that when you receive that thing on Facebook saying the study has shown blah blah blah, what I would encourage people to do is rather than share the link, is to go to the study read it yourself and then make your conclusion. Because what you're getting from the article going study showed this is a third-hand interpretation of a particular finding. Because just say, I, you know, you go, our study shows that, I don't know, if I eat Cocoa Pops, I can lift 20% better. Um, yeah. And I, I go to the study and I realise, oh, they tested 10 people and it was funded by Kellogg's. Then it's like, well, that's H a much better does, conclusion. How does a normal person find that study? Because often newspapers... They write PubMed with studies. PubMed, Google okay. Scholar, that would be good places to start. But here's the, the thing: are they all available to the public? So the, Google the and Scholar, uh, Google Scholar, and PubMed are freely available online right but now. Google like I, Scholar, we wouldn't be. I probably wouldn't be able to decipher. What, if I read a study on, um, you know, the fucking latest ketogenic trial, or whatever, hmm. I'm probably not going to understand what I'm reading, right? In truth. So have then you read I, one? Have no, you tried to read one? You might be able to. I, try, I have tried reading some. I, I've tended to just <laughs> read the conclusion because I'm like, all right, this seems like a summary. Hmm. That's okay. Right? But, but you, can also okay? Read, you can also read, they'll, they'll talk about the test group, the control group and stuff, and that's a lot of the part of you trying to figure out whether you believe it or not. And so there's always PubMed, a conclusion. It's true. You can just go PubMed straight to the conclusion. And that's exactly Google what I just Scholar. said, though. Yeah, that'd be reasonable <laughs> places to <laughs> start. Because <laughs> I remember going to uni a long time ago and we had, like, access to a database. Yeah. And the database had all the papers, but you couldn't get to that database of papers without being a, a student. Part of uni and a student and having to log in. Yeah. So not, that was many years ago and I didn't, I'm not aware that you can just go and... If I wanted to find something out about a topic that I heard on Facebook, can I just hit Google and do that? Yeah, of course you can. Okay. And, and bear in mind when you go, I, I, I don't do that. I don't have, you know, when you say I, I don't know how to appraise a study. Remember, there's scores of uh, pages on the internet showing you how to critically appraise a subject. There are plenty of tutorials, video and online and similar talking about basic ways of understanding statistics. Mm. These are freely available and they're all available just with a Google search. It's just actually going through it putting the time into it. Yeah, and then when you look at it, then, I mean, if I, you know, when they go, there's a study showing 15 people have done this. I mean, there's more than 15 people that come to Monday Afternoon Strength and Movement. Um, you know, there's 20 plus people who go to Fight Factory. And what you're really doing with any study is just looking is that what is this, is this artificial finding generalizable to my practice and to the population? And yeah, I mean, PubMed and Google Scholar are just two things I've just pulled out of the air. But if you look at, uh, you're right, there are databases available to people uh, signed up to universities and similar, um, but you don't necessarily need that for answering simple questions. But the other thing is, bear in mind, is when you get this, you know, thing that you get sent, this clickbait on the internet, is go to the source first. Um, have a read of that and... Do you, do you think that in the age we're in with social media and, and people getting curated... Uh, news delivered to them and all those things that and the spread of information just being that much more rapid uh, do you think that there's more of a need now than there was you know more than ever for people to know how to um, sift between what's maybe not what's true and what's false but what's just blatant bullshit and what's you know of a high quality we've got an interesting time now where you don't have any lack of information uh, and what you've got to look at is where is the information coming from 
whether that information itself is something newly generated by that person or just, uh, you know, clicked on from somewhere else. And the other thing is when people are, are treating opinion as being a, a valid way of changing uh, their practice. So I think the issue now is validity of information rather than availability of it. I mean, I'm talking to people as I, I keep coming back to our, our age vintage only because you've got people who knew a time before there was the internet where you'd either just have to go to a textbook or that library encyclopedia. We just don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. But what we need to do is that what we had then was much fewer sources of information but had to pass some kind of process in order to be published. And, and I, at the moment I say that, I know there's going to be people listening there going, yeah, but that would have been, you know, that could have also not been true. It's like, Government yeah, conspiracies. 100 percent yes, right. But chances are, yeah, the chances are it was much more credible than yeah. a lot of what's out there now. So I should defend that what we actually have now is a great thing. We, yep. have, we have greater access to information than we've had done, but what we need to do is to constantly vet that in our mind to make sure that what we're passing on isn't spreading further misinformation. Or the other thing is that when I go, oh, look, you know, all I have available in this, tub in, in this uh, area or topic is expert opinion, is to go, well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but you need to be aware that that is all that is there and therefore this uh, conclusion may change over time. So you remember that's oh, you know this is the other thing where people get pride. It's like oh you said this you know five years ago. So like, yeah that was that was me then, uh, and you know I'm I've sure evolved. He, yeah and I'm I'm sure when I look back on this podcast people said oh you said that there or that fact you said wasn't quite right. It's like sure, this is what I said at this point in time uh, in November 2019, and uh, now that I listen to that I go oh you know what I, I think differently about this or. Oh yeah, you said that about that, you know, that pathway, and that that's actually not correct. You're like, oh yeah, fair enough. Rather than oh, you know, that's now concretely set in stone, and therefore you shouldn't progress to this thing you really want to do. Yes, I think that's the other thing is to have a lot more compassion for what is being said at that point in time, because now you've got information being bombarded at you. We we need time to digest it, and time to look at it properly. I wanted to ask you, um, just back on the drug thing, Yeah, we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. Yeah, sure. I wanted to know, because um, I think this is very relevant for, for listeners, Yeah, and it's something that I heard from Rhonda Patrick, who is often on Joe Rogan's podcast. Okay. She's a, I don't know what, she's a biologist or something. She yeah, knows she's some, smart. She knows some stuff. <laughs> and she said, she, she's really smart, and she said that she would categorize anyone that uses any kind of medication, like a painkiller or... Um, you know, over-the-counter things that we take, you know, pretty, uh, pr pretty much for granted here, right, in this time. But anyone that's using them at least once a month, she would consider a, um, uh, to have a dependency on. So she said, like, women who are taking um, Nurofen for a couple of days a month because of period pain, I would consider that, that they are, they are like, they have a, a level of addiction or dependency to that drug. And, you know, I was like, oh, shit, wow, that's, that's really something. Because, you know, a lot of these things, i got a mate who used to... Uh, like drinking a lot and he'd just wake up and pop two neurofin in the morning mm. before he'd get out of bed and that was his thing. Um, but he never would have looked at himself as, you know, someone that has a dependency on the drug or is perhaps abusing this drug. What do you... Can you give some thoughts on that and perhaps maybe what the ramifications are of mm. overusing these, these drugs that we really do take for granted that are very easily accessible to us? Sure. Well, I mean, everything uh, the rant the last few minutes is that I'd actually want to... Uh, go directly to what Rhonda Patrick has said 
and look at exactly what she has said and the basis from which she has said it before I can say I don't agree with Rhonda Patrick. But right. from that statement you have just said, I, I think you are not going to get addiction from use of a drug uh, acutely for the indication that it is, uh, it is provided. Um, I mean, I'm not a drug and alcohol doctor by any means, but addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder where you have a, a stage of anticipation, a stage of intoxication, and then a, a negative, uh, and then a negative phase, and that there is neuroplastic changes that will modulate addiction. So I, sh- I just want to say that straight up because that is a very different process. I um, probably mixed my words there too. To be no, no, it's fine. Fair to her, yeah. But with when it comes to dependence, um, I don't know whether that specifically relates to tolerance. Um, which is an increased amount of drug in in order to achieve the same pharmacological effect. So whether it's you refer, whether she or you are referring to tolerance, but one thing I can say is that firstly, I guess if you're going to use uh, a simple analgesic like Panadol or Nurofen, um, I, I can't comment on whether you would get dependent on it. But simple use. So if your your buddy you know has a big night and takes two Nurofen, he's not going to be dependent on that practice. Or I, I don't. I don't believe that with what I know at this point in time. Let's make it as guarded as we it's can. Like doing it daily? It's like a habit for him, but if he didn't have it, he could just go to work and it probably... Yeah, he wouldn't would, shut down. He wouldn't be like frothing at the mouth for it. Yeah, I think of older patients who have osteoarthritis who are able to... who are not surgical candidates but want to have symptom control and achieve good quality of life. And if that means that they can take a simple painkiller that is not known to produce any... Uh, you know, ostensible addictive symptoms, then I don't see any problem with that. But like everything, I think one thing is that if you take a drug that you need to tell someone about it, you ideally need to have a... We're lucky enough in Australia, you can have a GP that's involved in your primary care. Uh, and before you go off and just take Panadol indefinitely for years, you should tell a medical professional about it so they can work out exactly what's the most appropriate thing. Because if all you've done is just take Panadol for years... you might, it might, there may be better things out there or there may be ways to get you off the Panadol. Yes. So at least involve a primary carer in it and then you can decide from there. So, yeah, I mean, for period pain, if that's what works and it's simple... Uh, I, mean, I mean, the other thing is that you've got to take it, quote-unquote, properly here insofar as if you've got pain, uh, take two Panadol at least regularly for a day rather than let the pain get overwhelmingly awful and then you take two Panadol and you go, oh, the Panadol doesn't work. Probably just haven't given it a fair go. Yeah, right. So you have to use it properly. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's that old use only as directed. So use it as directed. Follow the instructions. <laughs> yeah. They're there for a reason. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah, because I, I guess what I took from that was that, fuck, people were probably... Based on that idea, it sounds like we, we, we overuse <coughs> these things a lot. Um, do we? Well, I mean, I feel like we do. I, I don't really know, right? We, no, one knows, no one knows what, uh, say, Voltaren does. But, you know, like, oh, you hurt yourself at training? Oh, you can pop a couple of Voltaren and you're going to feel pretty good. And maybe that happens to you once a year. Maybe it happens to you once a month. Mm. You know, so then you're using anti-inflammatories every three and a half weeks. You're doing that for 10 years. I don't know. Is that good? Well, I mean, I tend to think it's not because those things are so powerful that there, there almost has to be a downside. They're not really that powerful. Um, so as we talked about, you know, with the pain pathway, I said it, at the periphery there is an amplification as it moves from periphery to the spinal cord. And what uh, ibuprofen or what Voltaren does 
is it just blocks that amplification from happening. So it stops the pain signal from being amplified uh, as it goes, uh, as the signal is transmitted centrally. So the other way you could argue it is that if you didn't do that, you had just uninhibited pain signals being transmitted, that that can lead to a process of wind up and then can lead to requiring other painkillers down the track. So, you know, maybe an argument is that maybe we're underusing them. Maybe we're just not using enough of them in the right way for the right period of time. Um, if you've got a tension headache, um, the way they talk about effectiveness of the drug is number needed to treat. So how many people you need to give in order to see an effect. So for a tension headache, um, if you give paracetamol, number needed to treat is two. If you combine that with ibuprofen, number needed to treat is 0.5. So does that mean that, you know, really we should be taking two ibuprofen with two paracetamol tablets? They work in different ways. Perhaps taking the right amount in the right manner, the way it's intended, is actually going to really get on top of the problem instead of a sort of half-baked way of, I take this every three weeks and it kind of doesn't deal with it and now I'm dependent on it. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Do you take anything when you have a tension headache as an example? Like what's your own personal take? Panadol and Nurofen. Panadol and your friend. Yeah. Combo. Yeah. Class of whiskey. My dad always, always. talks <laughs> my dad always talks about the combo. He loves yeah. his painkillers. Yeah. He always he loves talking about the yeah, man, yeah. you know it's the combination they say these days, mate. <laughs> 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 that, that is a statement. I mean I can't I can't yeah. fault that, but does that mean, you know, beer and chips? Does that mean, you know, like whiskey yeah. and peanuts? Your like combo yeah. works. Yeah, there's a lot of combinations that work. But taking the drug in the right way at the right time, in the right dose. Yeah. People are like, oh, I take one panadol every eight hours, every three days. You're like, well, that's not doing anything. It's tough because like a lot of people have to, in the modern world, have to keep functioning. So a lot of them assist people carry on the bloody nine to five forever. Yeah. Whereas they probably need to take a couple of days off or they probably need to be sleeping more or have access to better food and stuff like that. So yeah. it does keep people going, Yeah. you know. So I guess you have to look at case by case if you were, you know, they help many people. Yeah, and the beautiful so thing about anaesthetics, I mean, for everything that was going to... I mean, we just touched on the beginnings of things. It's like anything about physiology is just a rabbit hole. Like when I start to talk about, you know, your painkillers and even nerve blocks, it's a rabbit hole there. The type of ventilation is something else. And when you talk about sleep and nutrition, there are entire podcasts, you know, dedicated to that. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, the idea of getting the right amount of sleep. But it sounds like glib when I say that. It's like, really, you're a fan of sleep? But, Dude, you know, this is... The next frontier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking about it just the other day, whether that notion is now that you've got wearable technology that can work out how long you sleep, um, whether eventually you're going to have athletes, now that we're aware of the amount of gains you get from sleeping, whether that you're going to mandate amounts of sleep um, with means of being able to track it. It's a new and scary thing. You actually think it would probably be a good thing mm. in some, you know, much as I don't like the idea of um, someone monitoring well, this every is, that's part of the population, part. but, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, the, the sleep thing. It is an epidemic, right? World Health Organization declared it as such in all Western nations. Yeah. So it's like, fuck. Lack of. Just, yeah, moment. lack of sleep. Um, yeah. Too much social media. Yeah, lighting, all mm. those, you know, all of it. Too much, like long work hours. All that shit. But they, they can trace a lot of it back to um, the invention of the light globe. Yeah. And as soon as as soon as lights became as Increase soon as productivity. we productivity. Yeah. Well we just we just stopped nighttime. Yeah. We just because the streets became illuminated, so people wanted to be out late. And then our homes became illuminated, so you stay up late. Yeah. 
Whereas prior to all of this lighting, you would have just gone to bed. Mm. Oh, just when we talk about ex- like circadian you know, rhythms. Yeah, but when we the, the when you said too much screen time, this is an, another thing. When, I, when a statement is put out there, it's like, what, what do we mean by too much screen time? And this is what social I mean. Social media. Yeah, but what does that mean? Like, is that you've got to define the problem of what is correct screen time? What is too much screen time? Is it looking at the screen with blue light? Is it looking at the screen without it? Is well, there's it lots the of little of problems day? inside of that. Yes. You yeah, want to go yeah, into so that now? I'll go at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just the two. No, I don't. But that's what I mean. When you look at, when you want to break down the validity of a statement, yeah. it's like what I'd really want to look at is, well, define be it. Be specific. Yeah. Look, be specific about Less it. Look at, mate, this is the Jungle Brothers. We make sweeping statements every yeah. fucking day. People That's who make we sweeping are. statements yeah. all the time. Too but, much I mean, social media just before bed when you have to get up really early in the morning and you're reading something that's related to a daytime activity. Yeah, that's fair. On Mondays. So, yeah. On the face of it? hangover. <laughs> yeah. On Sunday. What if it helps your hangover? What if it's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, not, I'm, just, I'm just staring really at the stage, but... Don't. You weren't there when I took the iPad off my clef. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You turned into a... Yeah, oh, I, man. I, I observed it. I don't need to read studies. <laughs> no, no, actually... <laughs> that shit is wild, watching a kid have an <laughs> iPad I don't need to read studies for a lot of things that people want to tell me about parenting. Yeah. yeah. I can see it, observe it It's myself. a beautiful line like that. It's like when you talk about, where's the evidence for this guy? Look, it's not anecdotal. I've seen it myself. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to wrap it up there gents yeah, unless yeah. anyone had a closing a closing thing they wanted to hit their dock with I just wanted to let listeners know because they can't see uh, well one it's Joe's birthday today yeah happy, happy birthday, birthday. Oh, and secondly thanks everyone he's got he dyed his hair <laughs> and his eyebrows I dyed my hair and my eyebrows and, and like, my eyebrows are blacker than my hair he looks very odd and almost you would, like a comic like a you would, think that it, you would think that it would just make me look kind of like an Italian but or something. sitting here looking at this But it really fucking doesn't been do very distracting the whole time. I'm going to show you guys a picture of the man that I believe I look like. Now, if any of you have, any of the listeners out there have ever <laughs> gotten interested in um, the, the theory of the second <clears throat> shooter with JFK's assassination, <laughs> there was a seri- the, the theory of the second shooter. So there was Lee Harvey Oswald up in the you book got depository. Too much time, and then there was a, another, another man because uh, JFK... Cop shots from two different sides, just so you guys know. Oh. Um, David Ferry, he was a, I believe he was a covert assassin for the CIA and he had alopecia. So he was losing his, he had like patches of no hair and he had no eyebrows and he used to paint his eyebrows on with boot polish. This I, is what I believe, looks I believe like. this is what I look like Show right us. now. That is what <laughs> you look like. <laughs> <laughs> is he yes. not the creepiest looking He's fuck you've ever seen? He's really good. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Oh. Yeah, so Joe's, we're looking at this the oh. whole time. It's very distracting. It says old school mug shots. And that's because, that is because uh, we have our JB Christmas party. <coughs> Tomorrow night, Tomorrow the party night. of all parties. This is, this, is, this is not your average gym Christmas party. This is the JB's fucking Christmas party. And for this one get, hour, we've spoken about um, anesthetics, etc. But every other hour of every day for the last four <laughs> weeks, we've been talking about Christmas party in, in this gym. We've got costumes. Paul, what are you going as? Oh, wait, you maybe don't... Oh, no, it doesn't come yeah. out till Monday. You say, who are you going as? I'm going as Blade. Blade? Nando, who are you going as? TBA. Snipes. TBA, my man. T? Young people don't Conan know Conan the Barbarian. Hang on. Who's TBA? Nando. To be announced. Oh. Duh. <laughs> uh, sorry, I ruined your thunder. Conan. <laughs> the Barbarian. Sick. Awesome. So good. So good. And I'm going as Scarface, Tony Montana. Mm. Heroes and villains. Heroes and villains Heroes is the villains. theme. 
Yeah. Mine is very much hero or villain. You can choose. Depends. Usually, if you're a guy, you think he's a bit of a hero. If you're a female, you probably think he's a villain. It's all vintage, as you said. All of the choices that we've made here. Mm. Yep. It is all. Well, that was when the best shit was going around. It's great. Grizzly, '96. See that or Marvel now, isn't it? The Daywalker. Yeah. That's all you got is Marvel. Really. Yeah. yeah. For, for superheroes. It's taken over the world. Yeah, it yeah, has. It's DC as well, but they're a bit lame. Yeah, aren't DC's they? not quite. No, no, man. Thank, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, pleasure. We thank appreciate you. you. We appreciate your work. On Wednesday, I'll be appreciating your work, you know, to the f- to the fullest degree. While some dude's sticking needles in me. All the best. Thank you. Uh, I can happily I say you'll be in very good hands. Yeah, I'm super. In Australia, I mean, it's, uh, it's funny thinking that people are going to be drilling and doing work, and I'm like, it's fine. Like, because I've had a couple surgeries before, nothing kind of like that. But you just know that it's going to be fine. Which, mm. what a privileged thing to be able to feel that way about going in and getting cut up. It's really, it's a really good thing that you said that. We should be very lucky that we, we just, we have this available to us, and you're bang on. Um, we're wrapping it up there. We will be podcasting next week with the Tim Branston talking about barefoot footwear and feet in general and Ooh. foot health. Awesome. He's a yeah, he's a legendary podiatrist from down south. Um, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. Um, let, let them have a listen that's a really great way to support us we appreciate you guys supporting us and we'll be training right through the new year uh, or through Christmas break we'll have a couple of days off over Christmas and New Year but we'll be training in between so do get in touch junglebrothers.com come down and uh, do the thing with us thanks guys thank you thank you bye